0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic's podcast. In this episode, Olivia Hartley speaks to writer and photographer Laura Dodsworth about her article on Faith Masks, where she looks at the quasi-religious narrative surrounding lockdown. I saw your photography series a while back on manhood and womanhood years ago in The Guardian, and one of the things that you mentioned in the cover piece for The Critic, was that you were more nervous about unveiling this series, which um, talks about the religious element of mask wearing, than you were about your series on the most intimate parts of the human body. Do you think what shocks people has changed throughout the pandemic? It's true. I was more nervous,
1: which in a way is just completely bonkers. But I think it's because I'm aware that I'm uttering an obscenity in in a way that people wouldn't have seen even in naked genitals I just seem to do this to myself over and over again produce projects that are controversial and put me into a slightly uncomfortable spotlight now when you create something I think there's also a performative element I don't create something and then hide it in a garage I really want the world to see it as much of the world as possible I don't want to be in the rarefied air of a little art gallery. I I want as big a digital footfall as possible, but that doesn't mean that I actually enjoy it. There's something about it that's quite uncomfortable. So each time um, projects have come out, I can feel a bit nervous about the reaction. So the first one, breasts, I remember I just thought that was just crazy left field. And now that's even laughable. The idea that a project with a hundred pairs of breasts would be controversial. Then penises, well, that's a little bit more controversial. And I did get called a, a whore and a cockaholic, that's a funny one, um, and a pervert, you know, they say never read the comments, well you can do, and people said some mean things, so that was a bit challenging, and then womanhood is well, that was that's a bigger taboo photographing vulvas and showing them in a non-pornified way and sharing all the stories that emerged through that which aren't just about sex pleasure and orgasms Although those those stories were brilliant but also all the more controversial stuff well yeah that was tricky and this, this kind of thing is triggering for people because in any in any work of art you have got you the creator you're in it you've got the subject which when you're working with people is them. So they're bringing themselves to it, their voice, what they say. And then you've got the viewer, the person that's interacting with it and they bring all their stuff. So they project themselves onto the work and onto you. And people really do that with genitals, sex, gender, identity, and all these great taboos that make us who we are. But I think the reason I was more nervous about faith masks is it's quite challenging. It's quite confrontational to take a picture of yourself with a mask on that has the word obedience on it. Because when we have been wearing masks for the last how many months, it is, July, since July last year, people want to believe, and they do believe, that they're doing it for scientific reasons. I think that's highly debatable as I touch on in the piece. But they also want to believe they're doing it to show they care and to show solidarity, and also because they're doing what the authorities you know best say. And to be told that you're wearing a mask maybe because it's obedience, or the other words were piety, compliance, new normal, solidarity, and conformity, they're not easy words. So if you look at that picture of a face with a mask on and you look at those words and you're seeing yourself in a mirror, it's confronting. And some people go, oh, okay, I get it. This is an art project to explore how these ideological values are now emblemized by masks. And some people will look at it and think, piss off. I'm not obedient. I'm doing this because it's science or I'm not compliant. I'm just working with the authorities during a pandemic. So I knew it would be controversial. And I've seen it's had a lot of shares on social media, but less shares than I would normally get from maybe high profile journalists or even politicians or scientists, because I think people might feel a little bit more cautious about being attached to a project that asks people to think so deeply about the meaning of something that's been legally mandated and enforced on us. So I was a little bit nervous about the reaction that
0: might incur. As always, it's never as bad as expected. I think I always overthink it. I think that's a really interesting point is that, you know, if you look at the cover, it's very stark, it's very different to kind of what we've done before. And it is just you with your mask saying obedience. And I think... People will look at that and they won't look at how you explore the other aspects of mask wearing, what it means to some people who feel you know, protected by it, which is something that you also touch on in the piece. And you've spoken a lot before about how people who sort of question the efficacy of masks and lockdown measures and stuff are practically branded as evil. And that sort of that did there was quite a strong reaction on Twitter to when we showed the cover. Have you experienced much of this outside the realm of social media? Do people feel like they could come up to you and say something? Or is this something that you think takes place mostly on an online platform where people feel far removed from you so they can say whatever they like? I think it totally happens in an online platform. In the real world, people are just normal and generally
1: more polite. People seem to crawl out from under their rocks on Twitter, especially, which is a bit of a cesspit, although I do love it. Mm. Um, And they adopt a more confrontational persona. So when people come up to me in the real world, if they recognize me, which is rare, it's it's normally to say that they like my work or to have a discussion about it, not to say, oh, I hated what you did with that. So I've never come across people being odd about it. And I remember reading reading Trish Greenhay, who's um, a scientist at Oxford University I think she's she might be at the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine write in an article that we should be wearing masks when we're jogging or cycling because for one reason to help prevent confrontations between walkers and joggers and I just thought what what where do you live I jog and I walk my dog every day and I haven't had a single confrontation with somebody about not wearing a mask in the fresh air this doesn't happen it's it's almost like a kind of a pseudo argument a pseudo debate that only seems to happen online where people become really polarized in in psychology there's something that's called the devil shift so when people are in oppositional groups they can fall into the trap of thinking that the opposing group is more evil than they are that they have evil motivations and they can't they just can't believe that the other person might be acting in good faith and so I think that happens online more. So no, no, I don't come across anything in the real world. I think it just happens online. And I think people are more polite and civilized and friendly in right. real life. But you talked about it being a challenging cover. I think it is. I think you guys are really, you know, you're brave in general. I love I love The Critic. It's my, my favorite magazine um, of the last year. It's just been really intelligent, open-minded. And I don't think another publication would have put a face mask reading obedience on the front cover so it is going to be polarizing and a few people messaged me to say I really like you and I like the article but please can you change your profile picture because I changed my profile picture to me with a mask on yeah. And they said they found it upsetting and triggering. Right. I think some people do feel really strongly about seeing masks. And somebody yeah. else said to me, I had to make myself read the article because the word obedience was off-putting. But I, I can understand where they're coming from because I still find masks really disassociating in the mm. real world. I find them dehumanising, disassociating. I can almost, in a weird way, forget that people are humans. I don't want anyone to leap on that and think, I don't think people are humans. I do, but there's just this dehumanising aspect which is really disconcerting. And I also do not like profile photos where people have a mask on. I want to see their face. They didn't need to worry about any viral contamination between their face and their iPhone camera. This makes no sense. So I get why people said that. And I, I changed my picture back. I was trying to boost the front cover in the project, but didn't work out for everybody.
0: Do you think the ubiquity of face masks in our society, you said how they're dehumanising. Do you think they'll have a long-term impact on human interaction going into the future. I think it's
1: possible. I think we'd have to really try and claw this back quickly. And I think there has to be a will to do that. Look, every, the project was about the, the religious values. What, what masks have come to embolize. I think they've come to sacralize blind faith, obedience, trust, compliance. I am spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't believe any religion really began with God whispering in somebody's ear look at the crazy things people do. This is hard baked into us. They cover their faces and they cover their heads. And I don't believe any of this started with, with divinity. It starts with something that seems to be built into human beings. Who knows really why women started wearing the veil? I don't believe personally, it's because God thinks it's a good idea. You can see how religions begin. I think in the last year, we've truly been able to witness the beginning of a nascent religion if we're not careful, might not be called religion, it just might be about following a creed that's about health and extending your life. And I don't know, do religions begin and then fizzle out like a damp squib? I kind of hope so. I think where it might go into the future is if babies and children become acclimatised to masks, if they grow up and it's their normal I am really super concerned about my kids wearing masks at school for all the normal reasons. I don't think they'll be able to concentrate. It's a distraction. It's going to inhibit how they breathe. They're nasty, dirty rags on a face all day. Teenage boys do not always wash their hands properly. I'm much more worried about E. coli than COVID. They're going to be forced to wear it despite the potential harms to their health. But will will that normalise it? Are they going to get used to that? And, you know, do people like me and my generation do we not even matter? Are we just like a bridging generation? Who knows what's going to happen in the next generation? But there has to be a will. People have to want to go back to normal and they have to want to uncover their faces.
0: That kind of shows that the nuance of the piece, which I think a lot of people miss just by judging the photo, as you say. And sort of the comparison of face masks with religious faith, I thought was a really interesting point. And you're right that so much of the rhetoric that's been used throughout the pandemic, especially by the government, has evoked sort of concepts of trust and faith in the science do you think that such a narrative was necessary to encourage people to stick to government guidelines and was it even effective
1: um i'd argue
0: it's not necessary but it might have been
1: effective we have one of the strictest lockdowns in the world it's probably the strictest in the developed world after ireland and if the polls are to be believed i scarcely can believe them but if they're to be believed Overall, the British public seems to be quite happy about it and reluctant to move out of restrictions quickly. So it's been effective. It's not the only way of doing things. I, um, I have a book coming out this year called A State of Fear, in which I am investigating the use of behavioural science and specifically the leveraging of fear to encourage adherence to the rules. And I think it's something we need a huge public debate about. We've never really considered the ethics. So specific tactics are used um, at a subliminal level beneath the level of our consciousness to make us comply. Don't think politicians use words by accident or speeches are just written by them off the cuff. A lot of thought goes into this. I'll give you an example of the rainbow. I don't really know why the NHS co-opted the rainbow. I can't know why. We're not we're not in the war room meetings. We don't know why they did it. Um, Some people got a bit annoyed because it was co-opted from pride, they thought, but the rainbow is actually a really ancient religious symbol. I didn't have space for this in my article, but um, think about it in Genesis from Mm. the flood. It's that symbol of hope. In Greco-Roman mythology, it was a pathway between earth and heaven. And now think about what a lot of houses look like when you walk down any road in this country. You see rainbows in windows. Now, ostensibly, that honors the NHS and NHS workers. But there's also another thing that human beings have always done. They've always hung good luck charms and religious amulets in their houses to ward off disease, and bad luck. And in a way, you can read these rainbows as no different to having a green man or a lucky horseshoe, or a Nazra in your home, or, you know, going back to the ancient Romans, they used to have flying penises specifically to ward off disease in their homes. So we think that we're different. We think we're civilised. We think we've moved on. We don't think that we're driven by the same impulsions, but I don't see any evidence that human beings are different this century to the last century, to a thousand years ago, to 5000 years ago.
0: Do you really think that the sort of blind faith of following religions and whatnot and those who follow the current COVID restrictions and guidelines without criticism do you think they're one and the same or do you think it's more complex than that and are people really so easily led are they looking for people to just tell us what to do well when have we not had that you know when have we had a culture or a time when we haven't had that I
1: mean pr- the priest the priest caste used to advise governments and used to devise creeds and moral codes by which the population lived we don't really have a priest caste in, in the Western world now, not in the same way. If we had a priest caste, then churches wouldn't have agreed to shut their doors. We're in a somewhat post religious world. We don't have a priest caste, we have a scientist caste. So the scientists are now devising the moral code by which we should live it's about solidarity when we're to show you care protecting the NHS the NHS is our is our church in a way and perhaps people in this post-religious world aren't as confident as of of life after death and all the focus is on extending life I'd say we've got a bit of a death phobia in our culture
0: that's interesting I think it, it does go a long way into explaining again like the nuances of your piece and you know you've been writing for us probably since about September and you've become a prominent and outspoken lockdown skeptic in your own right completely over the last few months at what point during the pandemic did this start to develop were you fine with lockdown 1.0 in the sort of blitz spirit that was promoted or were you opposing it from the very beginning um I'd say back in March I felt a low whiplash of shock that we were going to lockdown.
1: Um, so, General Nick Carter had a piece out recently in one of the broadsheets where he talked about how because we're going to be a poorer nation, um, we're going to be going into an austerity that most of us haven't known in our lifetimes. That's the kind of breeding ground for nationalism, and it's and it's the kind of breeding ground that wars come from. And I thought, why why are you saying this now? This was obvious back in March that we were going to go into staggering debt and performing a kind of social experiment that we wouldn't have dreamed of before, telling people who are completely well and don't have symptoms that they can't go outside and earn a living. A lot of people haven't seen it that way because they've been furloughed or taking their salaries and working from home, in nice middle-class, comfortable houses. But a lot of people were told, no, you can't go out and work. I remember watching a Facebook conversation between people where they were criticizing a window cleaner who they saw out and about in the spring that's not essential work, why is he out? I can't believe it, he's not doing his part, he should be at home and I thought, Jesus Christ, how have we gone within a couple of months when we accept people work and earn money to feed their families and to live and have a decent life to they're not allowed to work? and of all the jobs to pick as well, he's got his hands in soapy water all day in the fresh air. I think people lost their minds. So I was i was never even a fan of the first lockdown because there are different yeah. ways to do things. I think in an epidemic, um, people will naturally become cautious. They will naturally apply self-preservation mode, which protects them, but also society and the community because we're, we're built like that. No, nobody can live alone. We always want to protect society. That's what a lot of these psychological motivations are about. And I think fear was an open door and the government didn't even need to knock on it. But what they did was kicked it down. So I, I don't think we ever had to lock down. I think people would have modified their behavior. They had done already before we locked down. Um, thank goodness there have been countries and states in the world where they didn't lock down and we will always be able to complain out there, like our control experiment, Sweden is the awkward counterfactual nobody likes to talk about, yeah. Florida versus California, now North Dakota versus South Dakota I think that the government could have trusted people they could have trusted people we actually did it all wrong instead of protecting the elderly in care homes and letting young people continue to mix and to work and judge their own risk everybody had to stay home
0: and it hasn't really worked has it because look where we are I think one of the key things that's that's kind of marked the pandemic has been this sort of fear and the self-policing which you mentioned about about the window cleaner do you think this was always brimmering and, and would you say it was linked to the culture wars that are ongoing where people feel like they need to police every other aspects of people's lives and their speech do you think they're linked at all maybe I'm not really sure I'm not sure if people have always been inclined to do that kind of policing
1: it seems it's happened in other societies and can be encouraged by the authorities. But I do think people have taken a really partisan approach. So I'm I'm quite I'm quite apolitical. I have voted for three different parties and I spought my ballot in the last election. That makes me really unpopular. People hate me saying that, but I did. I couldn't vote for any party and I'd be truly stumped today. So I think of myself as not very political, but people who align with a political tribe will often conform to what the rest of the tribe do. So I was really surprised that the left didn't stand against lockdowns, given that it was really obvious they would primarily disadvantage the poor and the already vulnerable and the working classes. And I I still don't really get what game they were playing. Or what they were thinking. So I think people on the left just stood for harder lockdown, quicker lockdown, longer lockdown, tougher restrictions, more authoritarianism. And that that surprised me. Um, So I think that there's been a really partisan approach. I don't don't really know if our reaction to the epidemic is anything to do with being woke. I think that our reaction to the epidemic is probably a really hard-baked human response to threat of danger and fear of death. And that's been exploited by the government to make people follow the rules.
0: Mm. What would your response be to people? And I know you probably do get this a lot on Twitter. What would your response be to people who say, well, if masks help some people feel safe and it's not harming anyone else, then, then what's the problem? Why is it that you feel it's so important to speak out on it as you have these last few months?
1: I don't have any problem with people wearing a mask if they want to. I would say at heart I'm a classic liberal. Um, I'm not remotely in favour of the burqa, but if a woman wants to wear it, she should. I think if somebody wanted to wear pants down the high street, they should be able to. I don't have a problem with somebody wearing a mask. I do have a problem with it being mandated, and it was mandated in the absence of clear, hard evidence that it was beneficial. And I think there would have to be an, I think there should be an incredibly strong onus and burden of proof on the governments when they made that a law. And there are there are public health experts and scientists who spoke out against it. The evidence is flyweight. If it wasn't, what you wouldn't hear is continuing references to things like restoring confidence on the high street, to solidarity, to showing you care. If you look at the government small print, the World Health Organization and the European CDC. All of their small print says there is scarce evidence or low evidence or the best possible evidence is that they might help. They can't actually give you any decent evidence that they do help. So that's what I object to, the fact that they were um, legally mandated.
0: Mm. And they came in, obviously, very late in, in the summer, I think, was when they were mandated on transport and then then in shops. Mm. Do you, think, do you think they're here to stay? I know a lot of people are worried that they're going to become a sort of permanent fixture of our society even long after the pandemic.
1: Mm, I don't know I think it's I, I, like I said I think people have to show the will um, actually the, go- the government would struggle to impose them if if everybody just refused to wear them because actually if, a, if there was a large-scale rebellion if people just threw off their masks frankly the magistrate system couldn't cope with the fines The prison system couldn't cope with, you know, we've made public health a criminal justice matter, which is just, I think, just awful, but the system couldn't cope. So if everybody wanted to mount a peaceful resistance and just stop wearing them, there's not really much that could happen. We're we're policed by consent, but people would have to want that we've already been told that we'll still there's no end date for masks and that we might have them next winter. Some of the behavioural scientists love masks. They love them because they think they express solidarity. Behavioural scientists like us thinking like a big homogenous group. It makes us a lot easier to control. You've got to remember behavioural science is not how, about how you feel, it's about how you behave. So they like masks and they also signal danger. Every time you go out someone's face is a walking billboard it's danger it says danger it's not safe out here so they like the signal that they convey and behavioral science is very deeply embedded within government uh you know within different units and there's a behavioral insights team so while they have that kind of privileged access decision making we might see masks continue
0: um yeah until there's a, a large scale disgust for them or rebellion or disinterest i think it's been such an interesting conversation i think it's really gone a long way to sort of clarify really what your piece is about if people didn't infer it the way that it was it was meant to be inferred. What's your hope for the months ahead? Do you really think? Do you really think this is the end? The end is in sight? No,
1: I don't at all. I don't think the end of the story is in sight. I think we're living through a prequel. If the last year was a story, it's it's a prequel. We can always write the own ending to our story, but we've gone through an enormous social experiment. And it's quite hard to know what happens next. I think that it's going to be difficult to move on where people don't want to really acknowledge the truth about things. It's really hard. It's really hard to that kind of mirror work and say, well, I might have been wrong. Or gosh, OK, I thought this was for the best, but this was the true consequence. It's going to be very hard. You know, there'll be an inevitable inquiry. Everybody wants to cover their asses, don't they? I mean, if, if you thought that you'd been responsible for many thousands of people dying and not and nobody you know not actually saving anyone's life how would how would that make you feel i don't know that's truly the result of lockdown we need a really robust independent inquiry to see i've learned a lot about myself and human nature in the last year so if we can use this as an opportunity to really learn about ourselves the The strength of human beings and the frailty of human beings, the strength of our government and the frailty of our government, then we're in an amazing position to learn and move on and make society better. But there has to be a will to do that. In lots of ways, although the MASK project was likened to religion, it's also a bit cult-like. And the problem with cults is that when people do come out, well, people come out of cults slowly and often they want to double down on their beliefs. There's a book called When Prophecy Fails, which is a good read. I can't remember the name of the cult now. It's completely escaped me. But look it up. And these people were waiting for a spaceship to come and rescue them. And the spaceship never came. And what's amazing is the first time the spaceship didn't come, they didn't go, oh, okay, this was a load of nonsense that set back on our our lives they just doubled down and they kept waiting for the spaceship. So we have to kind of withdraw from one state of being and move into the next state of being, and that
0: requires open-mindedness. Thank you very much, Laura Dosworth, for talking to me on The Critic's podcast. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.